Aaron. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. I received a telephone call today from one of our listeners in Massachusetts who indicated that a police officer, a veteran police officer, was required, mandated by uh, the city that he serves in order to carry, launch a pride flag from his vehicle. He was warned that if he did not do that, he would be fired. And he's a Christian. Would you believe that Jesus spoke to something like that in the book of Matthew? He did. Believe it or not, he did. And we're going to talk about that here today on Viewpoint, along with many, many other things. In fact, We're going to talk about so many things concerning the book of Matthew that perhaps you never even knew about. Or if you did know about them, they just weren't emphasized because a lot of people, instead of referring you to the book of Matthew, would refer you to the book of John. Why would that be? Well, in John, we have a passage called John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's about all a lot of people know about the Gospel of John. It gives somebody some courage to at least know one verse in the Bible. And so they use that as their premier lodestone for life in order to try to uh, convince other people to follow Jesus. For God so loved the world. Well, it is true. He did. But right after that, Jesus said, but the pagans are condemned already. Have you ever heard that one quoted? Well, there are some things we just don't like about the Gospels. We don't like the Gospel of John because of some of the things that Jesus said. But how about the Gospel of Matthew? That's the first one that appears in our Bibles. And today on Viewpoint, we're going to be focusing on that particular gospel, and I don't think you're going to be disappointed because we have a very smart guy who is joining us here on the program today. In fact, at the top of his book, it says Bible Smart. Now, his name is not Bible, and I don't know to what degree he considers himself smart, but he's talking about trying to help people understand the Bible, and particularly the book of Matthew. And he's done a very interesting job in presenting the book of Matthew in such a way that hopefully we can gain, or at least the novice can gain some better understanding of what Jesus had to say there in the book of Matthew. And by the way, whether you may realize it or not, the book of Matthew, I believe, is far more complete in terms of looking at Jesus' life. The beginning and the end than the book of John. Now, our guest may disagree with that. We'll allow him to speak to that in just a few moments. But the Gospel of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, of the three synoptic Gospels, and it tells how Israel's Messiah, Jesus, comes to his people, that is the Jews, is rejected by them, and how after his resurrection, he sends the disciples to the Gentiles instead of the Jews. Why does he do that? 
And why is it that the Gospel of Matthew talks so much about the kingdom of God? Well, today on Viewpoint, we need to understand that. And our special guest today, Mike Napa, is joining us from the state of Colorado in the high mountains. And it's good to have you on the program, Mike. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. Man, that was a nice little introduction. I have to tell you that uh, if you ask my son how smart I am, he's going to he's gonna disagree with you quite a bit. <laughs> well, sons always disagree with their fathers until after their 25th birthday when they realize that their father knew so much more. That's true. I think as he gets older, he's discovering that uh, uh, maybe I was smarter than... Well, I think it was that way with Jesus and the disciples. You see, uh, <laughs> Jesus... The disciples thought they were pretty cool. Uh, I mean, they were Jews. They were raised as Jews. All of the disciples were Jews. And uh, here's this uh, guy that comes along by the name of Yeshua, Jesus, who uh, says, you know, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But these guys were already fishers. They were expert fishers, and they couldn't understand how a guy like Jesus, who didn't seem to know anything about fishing, could make them better fishermen. So uh, there's a lot to be understood as we read the scriptures. And in some sense, you almost have to be willing to read between the lines, don't you? Well, I think the scripture speaks uh, speaks pretty clearly. What we don't do often with scripture is read it in context or read it in terms of its literary format. So there are... Um, there, that's where we struggle. I think we take um, we take something that's intended to be symbolic and treat it as a literal uh, command, or we take something literal and assume uh, that something that was prescriptive is actually supposed to, or something that was descriptive is actually supposed to be prescriptive. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember for a time, uh, I had a new guy who he read that Jesus got up early in the morning and went to pray. And for him, that meant that every Christian was supposed to get up before 5 a.m. and get up and pray. And I just didn't understand how he could make that leap of logic, that one example of Jesus doing one thing in this one time. Uh, actually, Jesus prayed all day long. He prayed in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, he prayed them all. And well, that's kind of what uh, we're supposed to do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, pray, without so. pray without ceasing? ceasing. <laughs> right. so, it doesn't mean we don't do anything else, but it means we're in a spirit of prayer, and we have a, right. a, an open line with the Father, as Jesus did. Right. Yeah. I think that um, it's helpful sometimes when I'm talking to people to say, hey, you know what, there are a lot of different ways to draw meaning out of a text of Scripture, and we want to use whichever method is the most applicable to that text. So, for instance, if Christ is, ta- is giving a parable, then we should know that he's talking in symbolic uh, language. If there's some kind of historical event being described, then we should know that this text should probably be just interpreted through a historical lens. They're actually, so people like me and you uh, and seminary professors and uh, pastors and those kind of things, we use, there are 14 primary methods that we use to, to draw meaning out of Scripture. And I think that... Um, most people know only one or two of those methods. And so yeah. when I was working on this book, that, or this Bible Smart book, I really wanted to show how all 14 methods are relevant and applicable uh, depending on well, which scripture passage. Mike, tell us real quickly uh, how, what makes your book, your approach, different? Uh, I think that um, 
Well, the thing that people tell me is uh, the idea of this, the Q&A passage mm-hmm. by passage. Question and answer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was sitting in a... So my wife passed away in 2016 from cancer. And after she passed... This is going to be a little story here. I hope that's okay. Um, after she passed away, I... Um, I figured I need to get back into a Bible study group because my Bible study group had disbanded at some point, and I just needed the I needed a human connection. And so that next Sunday, wouldn't you know it, uh, a new Bible study group was starting up at the church. So I signed up. When I went to the to the group itself, I found out it was a young adults Bible study group. Everybody there was about 25 years younger than me, and I was I was gonna just you know not go back. But those kids, they were all like 25 to 30 years old. They were all like so generous and kind to me that I just. I kept coming back. Mm. One day I was sitting in this Bible study group, and they were asking questions about something. I remember. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have to ask you to pick up on that story after this break. Hang in there. Keep it in your mind. We'll be right back. Okay. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're talking with a special guest, Mike Napa, concerning his book, Matthew. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating piece of work, how he has chosen to go through the book of Matthew and ask, shall we say, rhetorical questions then that require an answer. And uh, to discuss those rhetorical questions for hopeful understanding of the average reader. And, uh, Mike, you were telling us a little historical story. Can you continue? Right, right. So I was in this uh, Bible study with all these young adults, and uh, we were talking about, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but at one point they were asking questions about the passage we were studying, and I said, I, I think I said to something effective, well, we know that Paul was a tent maker, and so da 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 and their mouths just dropped open, and they kind of stared at me for a minute, and there was a moment of silence, and then finally the leader of the group said to me, Mike, how do you know this kind of stuff? <laughs> and I was like, I thought it was pretty common knowledge. It's you know? called reading the Bible. <laughs> I took it as just common knowledge, and I realized that these kids, they were hungry for Jesus, and they were, they were longing to understand the Bible. They just didn't know how to go about it, what to do about it. And so that kind of was the inspiration behind this book, okay. Bible Smart. All right. So, now, inter- you you mentioned uh, these fourteen different ways to uh, kind of analyze the scripture, and so on. We're not going to go into all of those, but everybody always mentions context. Mm-hmm. You know what I've discovered? Yes. Inevitably, somebody will try to use the word context in order to avert having to deal with a particular scripture that they don't like. I have I I've at, noticed this continually uh, to avoid theological issues, to avoid applicational issues. Well, you have to understand the context. Well, yes, but Jesus spoke, and this is what he said. <laughs> we don't like what Jesus said oftentimes, and he said a lot of things in the book of Matthew. But one of the things that uh, struck me uh, a number of years ago 
I was reading through the scriptures, as I customarily do, and I came to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I couldn't go any further. It was as if the Holy Spirit came upon me, and my eyes were opened in a way I have never, ever seen or experienced before, and it had nothing to do with context. It had to do with meaning, implication, application, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of David by lineage, the son of Abraham by faith. And it helped to open up the entire scripture. Jesus, Yeshua, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How many people want to read the begats that Mm. open the book of Matthew? And yet without that understanding, we don't get it. We miss the context of the whole Bible, don't we? Yeah, we do. And I will, I will admit to being one of those guys who skipped the skipped the genealogies for many, many years. But now I find uh, I find them to be fascinating because now I've read the Bible enough that I begin to recognize some of these names. Yeah. In this genealogy, and if you go into the Old Testament, you find you start reading some of those genealogies, and you find that amid the genealogies are names that start coming up if you read the book of uh, Ezekiel, uh, chapter 38 and 39, some of the very names that are said there in the end-time confederation against Israel are mentioned right there in the first uh, few chapters of Genesis. Yeah, and there's um, there's a lot of history in this this first, for instance, the first, I don't know, what, 17, 15, 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. Sure. Where... Um, those histories are things that are foreign to us, but would have been well known to uh, the people of Jesus' time, who had been raised in the synagogue and been studying the scriptures and these kinds of things. And so these names that we read as unfamiliar names would have been really known to them. And I think it's important in this context, because what Matthew seems to be trying to do is to communicate that Jesus is not just some great guy, not just some prophet or a good person, but that he's actually the the promised Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And one of the one of the key credentials for the Messiah was that he had to be a son of David. Exactly. I highlighted that on page one of your uh your first <laughs> oh, chapter. Oh, good. A man yeah, who wasn't right a son of David just wasn't qualified to be the Messiah. So here's my question. If okay. that be true then why didn't the religious leaders recognize him as a strong candidate for Messiah? Well, I think there's evidence that at least some of them did, right? Uh, even though we... You mean like Nicodemus and Joseph yes. of Arimathea? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, Aside from that, we don't know about many of them. We don't know a lot of them, but we do know that there were Pharisees who followed Christ. And so uh, it's really the kind of same situation we have today when we have people who intelligent, uh, educated people who will look at the gospel and think of it as a myth. And then there are those of us who look at it and see truth in history. So it's not that um, it's not that easy to say, oh, he should have seen it or he shouldn't have seen it. What's, what happens is that the Holy Spirit works how he works. And when the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to understand the, the coming of Christ and the understanding of Christ, then we respond. Some of us have just decided not to take that. Well, I think also... Uh... 
they didn't recognize. On the one hand, uh, when Herod inquired of the wise guys, I mean the wise men, uh, the magi, uh, where this uh, king was to be born, the Herod consulted with the religious leaders of the day, and uh, they said, well, it says in the book of Micah that he will be born in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was the birthplace of David. So they knew that, but despite knowing that, they never purposed to make the connection that he would be the son of David. Yeah, I really don't have an explanation for that, except to say that I myself have have failed to make connections with God and with Scripture in my own life. And so I, I find it. I find it disappointing that they did not recognize what was in front of them. <laughs> well, but it's been historically me, disappointing for a whole nation. Mistake? Yeah. But I have to admit, I have made that same kind of mistake in different kinds of ways. All right, Joseph, uh, right there in Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, uh, we know that Joseph was uh, espoused to Mary. Uh, they had not come together, but they had entered into a marital covenant which was common uh, that's how they got married in those days and then right. the husband would go back to his father's house and he would prepare the place for his spouse then they would come together uh when the father says everything's ready and uh so they never came together in that sense but mary is mentioned over and over again but joseph seems to get left out why yeah, and that was one of the questions that somebody sent to me. So when I was doing this, what I, I did was I asked, I went on Facebook and I asked my uh, connection on Facebook. I said, I'm, I'm looking for volunteers to um, read one chapter out of the Gospel of Matthew and then send me your questions. Mm-hmm. And then I made a list of questions myself and I kind of curated them into about 200 questions. But that was one of the questions that someone asked me was basically nobody seems to know much about Mary's husband, Joseph, and why is that? Well, there's really only speculation uh, that we can make. There is no real historical um, record of Joseph outside of the Bible. So what we could do is we could put together a, a picture of Joseph by what's mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The theories are, and I don't know if this is true or not, this is just a theory, but the main theory that seems to have taken hold is that um, that Joseph may have been an older man, uh, maybe a widower when he married Mary, that... Um, he was around until Jesus' 12th birthday, we know, because of the visit to the temple. But then, uh, after that, perhaps he passed away. And well, we don't even have to go to that. How about the idea that uh, the the Gospel of Matthew, as with all of the Gospels, was not about the individuals, it was about Christ. And Jesus was born of a virgin. Joseph was not his father. He was only a surrogate father. And therefore, it was not necessary for the rest of the Bible is, to discuss him. I think that's the most important issue, isn't it? Well, that's certainly a valid theory. So I, I honestly don't know why. I do well, it's it. not even a theory. That's a fact. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus was, Joseph was not his father. Jesus was born of a virgin, and that's the thing that mattered. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, in the book of Matthew, we find that uh, a fellow by the name of John the Baptizer, 
who was uh, mentioned prophetically in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, that he came along for about six months and was proclaiming the kingdom of God that was coming and calling the people to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then Jesus comes along and he comes to John's baptism and requires John to baptize him. John says, no, I, I don't deserve to baptize you. So Jesus said, well, yes, you must be to fulfill all righteousness. Did Jesus need to repent then? My perspective on that is that he did not. Um, the... In fact, if you didn't have that perspective, Jesus would not be able to be the sin bearer for the rest of us. Right. Because the Bible says that he lived and obeyed and suffered temptation, yet without sin. Right. That's what we know. We know that both Christ himself and his disciples taught that Jesus never sinned. And we see also in John the Baptist the idea that Jesus uh, had no need of repentance and the fact that John objected uh, to baptizing him. So mm-hmm. um, this idea that Jesus might have needed to repent, um, I think that, well, history reports that they actually caused some uh, concern among early Christians because they thought that his baptism was just a little bit embarrassing, uh, <laughs> that maybe it shouldn't be included. Yeah. But uh, in spite of that, Jesus shrugged that all off, uh, in spite of knowing his own, in his own mind that he was sinless, in spite of his disciples knowing it, and in spite of John knowing it, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't bother with that in any embarrassing implication associated. He insisted on being baptized. So even though we can't know for sure his full motivation, maybe he was trying to set an example, as he did when he washed the disciples' feet. Uh, maybe he was just following the, the procedure of the time. Whatever, or maybe even it's just he was he was um, recommending John as a, a valid prophet. But whatever the reason, uh, Christ decided to do that, and so that's why we do it as just an uh, object of his obedience, we then obey. Exactly. Follow his example. Okay. Now, if we look at the gospel of Matthew, uh, I think it's pretty well understood that uh, the gospel of Matthew was written, unlike the other gospels, with a unique particularity to the Jewish people. And with all of their culture, with all of that uh, understanding, uh, that's how the gospel was written. So he talks about the kingdom of heaven, and then he also talks about the kingdom of God. In fact, the book of Matthew is replete with that kind of reference. But there's only one place in the whole Bible that the words kingdom of heaven appear, only in Matthew's gospel. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's probably just uh, a unique writing style of of, uh, Matthew. Now, you mean in, just another in, way of expressing kingdom of God, maybe? Maybe. Well, I know that kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used synonymously, both in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess in Matthew's gospel. <laughs> 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 um, so this phrase then uh, appears as as um, as a synonym, but I think um, maybe the idea that the kingdom of heaven emphasized that it was physically near, uh, literally is drawn near, or maybe that mm-hmm. the kingdom um, is is both something that is dawning and will begin to be seen as heaven invades earth. Mm-hmm. I think that um, when we talk about Christ coming, we tend to view it as this great visitation 
of, of where he was welcome and so forth, which certainly is it. But there's another aspect to the, to the incarnation of Christ that we sometimes overlook, and that when Christ came into uh, earth as a human, as a human child, that was actually an invasion. In this uh, realm, Satan had been given authority, and mm-hmm. Christ then, to come into this place where Satan had full authority, was, was somewhat of an invasion. And in fact, when we look at the temptation of Jesus, you can see some of that. Um, you can see some of the idea that that Satan is a little bit worried about this invading army, so to speak. Well, not only that, not only was Satan worried, but the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all of them were desperately concerned and worried about it. And they thought uh, Jesus either was a liar and a blasphemer or an alien. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think most of they were just worried about losing their own power. Exactly. You, you got that right. Time. We'll talk about more about this when we get back from this break. Friends, the book, uh, Matthew, question and answer for the curious soul, $18 on our website, saveus.org. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint, friends. As we say constantly here on this program, Viewpoint determines destiny, and our viewpoint concerning what the Bible says determines destiny. Our viewpoint concerning what the Gospel of Matthew says determines destiny. We're going to see how that very well is true as we move forward here today. There's so many questions, so many things that our special guest Mike Napa and I could be talking about And we're not going to have time to talk about everything that I certainly would like to talk about and perhaps that he would like to talk about. But we're going to try to uh, bring some highlights uh, that would be important. Mike, about, uh, well, it was about 30, no, more than that. In 1976, 77, I was in the hiatus between my first bar exam in California and having to retake it. And so I had about three or four months to prepare for the next bar exam. And during that period of time, the Lord prompted me to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, wow. Way to go. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and they're not short chapters. So here I was supposed to be preparing for the most difficult bar exam in the country, and you devoted everything you had to it. You just ceased everything else, and that's what you did. But the Lord prompted me to memorize, get up early in the morning, five in the morning, every morning, and memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and then to meditate on it as I drove back and forth to West uh, Los Angeles 
for the bar exam course and so on. It was one of the best and most important things I ever did in my life. God used that to change my life, to strengthen my marriage, uh, so many things. And if it had not been for that, I doubt that I would be doing today what I'm doing. So I, I hold the, it's not just the Beatitudes that I hold in high esteem, it's the whole Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with all of this talk about being blessed. Blessed are you when uh, this, and blessed are you when that, and blessed are the poor in spirit, and, and so on. But then, Jesus concludes those beatitudes, those attitudes of being, with a final beatitude that promises persecution and suffering. It's interesting. Nobody wants to talk about that one. Yeah, uh, I find that to be very true. It's um, And really, I, I want to commend you for memorizing all of the Sermon on the Mount instead of just the Beatitudes. I know a lot of people who are really happy with the Beatitudes. <laughs> well, yeah. In fact, in some <laughs> translations, they even take the word blessed and turn it into the word happy. Well, I think that's accurate, uh, radically speaking, linguistically speaking. Uh, the Hebrew version of that is actually how happy... And then the, the Greek, mm. I think the Greek is, uh, now i got to look at it, I think it's Makarios or something like that. Uh, yeah, Makarios, which is a state of happiness and well-being. So happy is probably a, a fine uh, translation. But we get stuck on that. And even if, even if we look at the Beatitudes themselves, some of them are really unusual. For instance, if, if this Makarios really does mean a state of happiness, then what we're saying when we say, blessed are you who mourn, we're saying, well, how happy are you that you're sad, right? Yeah. That's... Um, that's an unusual thing. But the last one, and I think the other thing that you, we need to point out with this last one is that um, up to this point, Jesus is saying, blessed are those, blessed are they. But when he comes to this final beatitude, um, he says, blessed are you. you. Yeah, he gets uh, very specific, very definite. So the Bible is, in, in general, the Bible is written to a people. But now he's speaking to individuals. Blessed are you as an individual if people mock you, persecute you, say all manner of things evil against you falsely for my name's sake. For great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Now, yeah, and I, I, what, we, what we miss in that is that um, this isn't one of those, well, maybe it'll happen to you or possibly. It's actually it's, it's the idea that this will happen to you. Well, Jesus so said in John chapter 16, too, that... Uh, uh, why do you think that people shouldn't, you shouldn't be persecuted? Uh, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In fact, he that right. killeth you is going to think that he's doing God a service. And we find that to be true even in our own day. Well, it's happening right now, and that's what happened to that uh, police officer up there in the state of Massachusetts who was required to carry a rainbow flag on his vehicle that represented something totally contrary to the word of God, everything that he believed under the threat of being fired. Then they also have the young man who came out at a pride parade and began to read the scripture and within one minute was arrested. Just happened. Yeah. It's yeah, happening it's right in front of our eyes Every single day now in the United States of America, 
Who would have ever thunk such a thing? And this is something that if, if uh, Scripture is true, for which we should be grateful. We should be happy because we're blessed. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Well, I've you've got really, a lot I've of persecution really... going on there in the state of Colorado. They don't even want to follow the constitutional law and are persecuting that as well. So you're living you know, right in the midst of it. Daily life is not as bad as it seems. <laughs> daily life here in Colorado is not as bad as it's made out. Oh, uh, okay. But I remember, I remember reading in Acts uh, when the disciples were beaten yeah. for preaching about Jesus, and they left the beating, worshiping God, grateful that they had been counted worthy to be beaten. And I wonder if that changes our attitude somewhat in the way uh, we respond to persecution. Well, yeah. In in fact, they they said in Acts chapter 4, they prayed a prayer. Lord, grant unto your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal that signs and wonders might be done in the name of your holy child Jesus. That was immediately after they were released after having been beaten. Yeah, and I think think we have a lot to learn in that area. I think Mm. we... uh, and I don't know that I'm not trying to justify any persecution against Christians. Please don't. Have no, we're not talking about that. that to me. Um, but I think our response to persecution uh, is sometimes unworthy uh, of the calling that we've been given. I think that our response tends to be retaliation, mm. and our response needs to be uh, love reciprocation. I would like to see us respond in love uh, rather than retaliation. But exactly. you know, it's easy for me to say uh, I've only. I haven't never. I've never been arrested for my faith. Uh, I have faced harshness uh, and threats because of my faith. Mm-hmm. But I'll be honest with you: the worst threats and harshness I've received because of my faith have come from Christian people who disagree with something I said theologically. Isn't that amazing? We might actually get to something like that here in the in the program today. <laughs> well, uh, and, and I think that there are those who are calling who call who call the name of. Christ as part of their lives who um, maybe are pursuing a different a different king and a different gospel, even mm. though they might call themselves Christian. Uh, very well, very, very much, uh, very possible. Okay, now, interestingly, uh, well, before we get to that, I want to uh, just make your book available again. Uh, it's called Matthew, uh, Question and Answer for the Curious Soul. And uh, $18 will put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Or, Mike, you say that if you go to a website, bible-smart.com, there's another option. What's that? Yes, sir. So uh, my publisher gave me a 25% discount code that I'm allowed to give to my friends and family just so everybody can get a little break from knowing me. Mm. Uh, but I have, before this interview, I got informa- I got permission from them to also give that code to uh, anybody who's listening to your show today. So okay. if they want to go get 25% off, uh, they can just find the code at, at my website there at bible-smart.com. Okay, okay. Now, uh the Bible talks, in fact, the book of Matthew talks always about the king, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And uh, Jesus said, anyone who obeys God's laws will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, but those who don't 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So some people would say, well, uh, didn't the Apostle Paul say that uh, uh, the law is done away with and uh, we're not under the law anymore? So why would Jesus say something like this? Yeah, because he was very clear about it there, right? This oh, and, and he minced no words about it. No, he didn't. And so this is one of those cases where context uh, plays an important role in understanding. And what I understand uh, context to mean is both the, the surrounding Scripture and then also Scripture as a whole. Psalm 119 tells us that it's the sum of God's Word that's truth. So when Jesus talks about the sacredness of the law and the prophets, uh, and then... Uh, breaks some of those laws and the prophets. We, we have some intellectual dissonance there. All right, first um, of all, I'm going to take issue with what you just said. We okay. have no record that Jesus broke any of those laws. No record. The only thing yeah, you could be from, referring to is the Sabbath, and he didn't break the from, Sabbath. All he did right. was break the, uh, the laws the or the halakhic traditions or laws that were superimposed upon the scriptures by the rabbis. Right. You're absolutely right. See, you're getting just a little bit ahead of me. I was moving in that direction. Okay. Um, Jesus Jesus speaks about uh, his word is to that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so when we talk about Jesus breaking um, the law, what we talk about him actually breaking was the human tradition that had been created to, uh, to supposedly help people keep the law. And so Jesus came to accomplish the purpose of the law and the prophets. And so when he says this, this idea that anyone who obeys God's laws will be called the greatest in the kingdom, he's talking about the truth of the purpose of God's laws. And we know also from Christ that all of the law and all of the prophets are bound up in the, in the command to love the Lord your God and then to love your neighbor. In fact, That's the Apostle Paul things. actually said concerning the law that it was righteous. Right? He never intended to say that the law was not righteous or not to be obeyed. What he That's said true. was, you can't be saved just by keeping the law because nobody does it perfectly except Yeshua, Jesus. We'll be right back after this, friends. Matthew, question for the curious soul. Oh, we can just barely scratch the surface here. Wait till we get to the next couple of questions. You're going to want to hear it. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. If you want to find out what the trajectory, the timeline 
of Jesus' ministry was, including the timeline of uh, the final week of his ministry, you're going to have to go to the book of Matthew. None of the other Gospels do that. And if you want to find out what Good Friday is, you'll go to the book of Matthew and find out there's no such thing as Good Friday. It's Good Wednesday. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to find out. If you actually go through exactly what the Scripture says from the time of Jesus' triumphal entry to the time of his crucifixion, you're going to find out he was crucified not on Friday, but on Wednesday. Four days as the Jewish people were observing their lambs for the Passover, Jesus was being observed right there among the Jewish people, and then Pontius Pilate declared him to be innocent, a lamb without blemish. I find no fault in him. Well, that's just my commentary there. We don't have time to get into all of that, but if you want to find out what the fullness of the Bible says concerning some of these things, you're not going to get it in the Gospel of John. you got to go to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, let's move from there to Matthew chapter 7. Our guest today says Matthew chapter 7 is one of the most sobering texts in all of the Bible. And he's absolutely right. And that's why almost nobody wants to teach or preach from it. Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and precious few there be that find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many, in fact the majority, will go in thereat. Wow, that doesn't sound too promising concerning the so-called massive revival that's going to take over and control the world, does it? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's really, that is a sobering passage. You're looking at, um, is that Matthew seven thirteen? Yeah. Did Jesus mean what he said and say what he meant? Or did he just say something figuratively? I think he said specifically what he meant. Yeah, there is, uh, it's hard to, we look at this and he's obviously using some uh, symbolic language when he's talking about gates to heaven and that kind of thing, because we know that um, this physical can't be a spiritual thing, so it is a representative thing. But he also is pretty clear that um, not not as many will go through the narrow gate or on the narrow road um, as as will. Well, he didn't leave it at that. Uh, he said, uh, you know, many are going to come in my name and uh, they're going to deceive many. And then he said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to inherit the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my father. You see, that's what Jesus came to do. He said, I came to do the will of him that sent me. What are we supposed to do? To do the will of him that sent him. But we don't teach that anymore. We just teach, well, you need to confess Jesus as Savior, and you're in like Flint. I think the struggle comes with the the struggle between um, the legalism of obedience and and the joy of obedience. Well, obedience uh, is obedience. You either do, look, look. Let's put it this way. It's not that hard to understand. Did you have parents? I had one. You had one. Okay. And did the parent tell you what you should do or not do? Mm -hmm. She tried. I was a little rebellious. Okay. So (laughs) you did not do what the parent told you to do. So 
how what was the parents' response then? Happiness, joy, satisfaction that you were demonstrating your love for your parent? Yeah, I think that probably my family situation is not the right situation because her response for me was most often apathy. Uh, okay. Rather than okay, but you you, but you I, still didn't do the will. I understand what you're saying. Okay, so it, this is not hard to understand. If a child is told to take out the garbage, and the child decides not to take out the garbage, he either did or did not obey. Now let's suppose that the child takes out the garbage, but in his mind and heart says. Well, I'm sitting down outside, but I'm standing up inside. In other words, is doing it with reluctance only because it was demanded. Is that child obeying from love, or is that a child obeying from what you call legalism? Yeah, and I think that you're hitting a good point there. The idea well, that is the point. Because, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty clear that if we wanted to be simply obedient, we would be Pharisees. Uh, we would follow exactly what the Pharisees did, because they, they obeyed down to the letter uh, of the law. But what God is calling for is a relationship of obedience. It's not just that we obey out of bitterness and anger and because we must. True. It's we respond out of gratefulness and love and joy. Well, what Jesus um, was, result, was complaining about with the Pharisees he said, you do, by your traditions, do make the word of God of none effect. That's in, in Matthew chapter 15. The problem was not with their keeping the law. It was their adding to the law and creating burdens on the people greater than they could bear. Right. And that if they, even they couldn't do as well as they Exactly. Thought. That's why we needed a Savior. <laughs> the, thing is, the thing is that God has lavished upon us such a great amount of love uh, that our refusal to reciprocate love through obedience is really just a selfish, hateful thing. Well, it and is, so and that's obey, called sin. We obey God, ideally. We obey God not because he demands it, but because we are grateful for all that he's done and all he's given, and just for who he is. Mm-hmm. I tell people when I teach them when I'm discipling, I say, you know, there's... It's okay. At the beginning, when you begin to serve Christ, you do it because, you know, uh, you're just trying to get things right, and you think, right. I want to get I want to get what God has to give me. Yeah, in other words, okay. because you have to. Well, or even just because I want what I want this blessing that, that's promised. Isn't that Which called is the fear of the Lord? Isn't that called the Something. fear of the Lord? <laughs> Something like that. Well, we've lost the fear of the Lord. Be. We don't want to talk about it anymore. Why? Well, but there has we to. don't like it. Well, but there has to come a point where we move in our spiritual maturity, where we move beyond that. That's you know the mature part. That's not where you start. No, that's not where you start. You start um, with the fear of the Lord, just like you do with the fear of your father, because if you don't obey him, there are going to be consequences. But there's a point then where we have to say, you know what? I follow the Lord and I serve Christ, not just because of what he does for me or what, what might happen if I don't, but I serve him because of who he is. Exactly. Just because... He is who he is. Exactly. This is the faith that Job had when when, when all hell broke loose in right. his life. And he could say, though he slay me, I'll still serve him. And when we begin to get to that point in our life, that's when the, that's when the, the spiritual growth and the spiritual intimacy with Christ actually begins to bloom like a flower in a garden. Jesus spoke very, very specifically in the Sermon on the Mount 
and then also later on in Matthew 19 concerning the matter of marriage and divorce. And we can do a dance around this subject, but Jesus didn't dance. He didn't dance around no, he it. Didn't. He said, whoever divorces their spouse causes them to commit adultery. And whoever marries the one so divorced commits adultery. We say, yeah. not so No, that's not the way it is in our country. That's not the way Ronald Reagan said it in Matthew in 1968. He gave us no-fault divorce. And God loves us so much that we can do what we want. And yet, Jesus, through the Father, in Matthew chapter, excuse me, in Malachi chapter 2, excoriated the religious leaders of his day for their divorce and remarriage, calling it treasonous. Three times, treachery. He called it. Why is it we just can't agree with Jesus? Um, yeah, that's a. <laughs> you can't dance around this, and that. I'm not going to let you dance around it. I can't have. I don't have a good answer because I believe that um, Jesus Christ taught divorce was just as bad as homosexuality. Exactly. Uh, just as bad as. Theft, In fact, that's why we have the pattern murder, of homosexuality, this, this transgenderism. Pattern. That's exactly this, this, right. I think that. Um, even even uh, Jesus was an extremist on this subject, even in his own time. Uh, in his own time, yes, divorce was generally frowned upon, but it was allowed by the Mosaic Law. I mean, divorce predated the Law of Moses, but it was allowed and, and accommodated. Uh, because of the, the stubbornness of and rebellion of, the, of their hearts, of the Jesus heart. said. And divorce in that time was, was really no, no fault only for men. Yeah. Uh, women had no choice in, right. in the divorce. Uh, and for men, they could divorce a wife for pretty much, uh, I guess, the... For any cause, as they said. Something, uh, as long as the wife displeased him because he finds something yeah. indecent. And that meant he could divorce her because she was less beautiful than another woman or because yeah. she, overcooked, she overcooked his food or whatever. And in doing that, because of that society, divorcing that woman forced her... Uh, to go marry someone else, yeah. which was an act of, almost an act of adultery. Well, then you well, get well, to, an act of adultery. And then you get to uh, Matthew 19, where the so-called save for the cause of fornication, it doesn't say save for the cause of adultery, it says save for the cause of fornication, which is uh, uh, sex before marriage. And that's why Joseph was uh, able to put away Mary, his wife, because he discovered that she was with child and had not come together with him under the marriage covenant. But the angel said, no, you don't need to do that. And uh, we have totally abused and twisted that particular so-called exception clause to justify uh, adultery during marriage. That's not what Jesus was talking about. It's very clear and uh, we just want to play games with the Scripture, and uh, it's, it's just unfortunate. Jesus said so many things in the book of Matthew that we really need to hear today, and because of our refusal to hear them, we are ending up in the kinds of problems that we're experiencing in our country today. Let's leapfrog to Matthew wait, wait, chapter... Wait, I, I, just, I just have to say one more thing about the subject, if that's all right. The thing that came out to me when I was studying this, because uh, I never had to deal with uh, even the possibility of divorce. My wife and I were married for 30 years, and mm-hmm. we were happily married. So I, I admit to speaking out of, out of that situation into another's life. But here's what I do know about Jesus' intolerance for the practice of divorce. In the New Testament, Christ presented himself as 
disciples present him as well, figuratively as a bridegroom. Yes. The bridegroom, and we, uh, his followers throughout the ages, are the, the church, mm-hmm. are, are pictured as his bride. Mm-hmm. So in this kind of relationship, when we look at Christ's intolerance for, di- for divorce, this is something that he is applying directly to himself as well. Exactly. Because he's saying Jesus Christ, the eternal bridegroom, hates divorce. He is therefore unequivocally, relentlessly committed to love and care for you and me, for his church, uh, through any obstacle, in spite of any sin, beyond the reaches of time itself, uh, despite our rebellion, disobedience, whatever. This is this is uh, just a fantastic aspect of Christ in that... Well, it is. And the Apostle Paul Christ. put it bluntly in Ephesians chapter 5, talking about marriage, and he said the Lord is not coming back for a bride with spot wrinkle or any such thing so paul says i'm preparing you as a chaste virgin for christ that's the message and uh you know if you want to talk about biblical context uh, we just provided it and uh, i think it's so important i'm speaking with some some strength here because we're paddling a canoe straight up niagara fall in terms of uh Uh, pastors teaching and so on that are totally perverting uh, the scripture in order to justify and please their constituencies uh, in our country today. All right, Matthew 28, very succinctly, it's called the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28. And the Great Commission has been misunderstood again. The thrust of the Great Commission is not birthing disciples it's teaching people to obey everything that god has commanded isn't that the thrust of the great commission uh i have to look at it more deeply i have i haven't uh i haven't looked at it I yeah mean, I've, i looked at it for the book there is no such thing as a disciple who doesn't obey god and doesn't follow jesus that's the right. thrust the, of the great commi- of the great commi- uh, commission, and because we have decided, we, we we decided to make uh, to evangelize as opposed to disciple, we have ended right. up with people that are radically undiscipled and disobeying God. Thanks for joining us, friends. Our guest today, Mike. Na- I told you there's so many things to talk about. It yeah. Matthew, eighteen dollars on our website, saveus.org. Bible-smart.com if you want to uh, get that code. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.